Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the presentation of the colors and singing of the national anthem by Amelia Mann. March on the colors. I want to welcome all of you to something that is a uh, biannual event here at the Kennedy School and one of the great, great things we do. And that is a chance to thank and honor the active duty and veterans, the uh, members of our student body and the audience and so forth. Let me start by just asking those of you who are either active duty or veterans who are students at Harvard University to please stand.
those of you that are not students at Harvard University but who have served in the armed forces, could you please stand? We thank all of you for your service, not only uh, to this nation and to the world, but also to this university. For it is from your leadership and your wisdom and your insights, and by the way, your openness to new ideas, that I think we grow so much. This is a school dedicated to public service. Many of you have put your lives on the line in service uh, to the nation and to a larger set of causes. You know, it's interesting, the Kennedy School is actually the most international of Harvard schools. We have students in a typical year from 80 or 90 different countries. Um, and we have many forum events, and uh, in the last year or so, we had Admiral Mike Mullen, who was head of the Joint Chiefs, speaking. And he talked about something that, I assume he got it right, I think he said, we're the only members of any armed forces that swear allegiance to the Constitution, not to the government, not to the leader, not to the king, and it was striking. He's, I had many, many students from other countries come up to me and say, I was so moved by that. I was amazed by that. They kind of wanted to see what it was like. So it's a remarkable thing that uh, we have. And uh, we are very, very grateful for all, of, all that we can learn and get from this. Let me just say a couple of things. Uh, first, I want to uh, particularly thank the Center for Public Leadership for their ongoing support of this activity, along with the Belfer Center uh, for Science and International Affairs and the Institute of Politics. And I'd also like to single out two people, single out two people in particular, Richard Krasno and Don Dixon, both sitting over here. This idea was kind of born in their living room, uh, in one of their living rooms, uh, not so long ago. And it's their idea and support, uh, we are at least wise enough to know that this is absolutely fundamental to everything we believe in. And so I'm enormously grateful to them. This is the fourth time that this has been hosted here by the Center for Public Leadership. And it's really a student-organized event by people that serve in many different ways. So there are more than 270 veterans uh, at Harvard today. And as a school and a university, we obviously are deeply indebted and deeply grateful. Now, one of the people that is most, uh, uh, who cares most about this issue is actually our president, Drew Faust. Uh, many of you know that she led the charge uh, uh, to reinstitute uh, ROTC uh, on the campus here at, the, at Harvard and beyond. Uh, she actually has written a great many books about war, uh, the Civil War in particular. She's a Civil War historian. She also comes from a family of historians. And she's talked not only about uh, what, it's, what life is like and so forth, but she also has a remarkable book as well as a PBS based on this Republic of Suffering and Understanding Death, which is obviously very much a part of service in this realm. She was unable to be with us today. She's been a terrific leader here at Harvard, pushing on things, everything from technological, uh, 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 te using technology for online learning through edX, making us one campus, and so forth. But she did very much want to give, provide a message, so she has uh, provided us with a video message, which we will show right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Drew Faust, President of Harvard University. I'm sorry I'm not able to join you this evening to acknowledge the extraordinary contributions of Harvard student veterans. But it's a pleasure and a privilege to share my thoughts with you on this special occasion. 
Last year, I spoke at the opening of the Army ROTC office on Harvard's campus. I was especially moved to witness the return of a ceremonial sword presented in 1916 by the Harvard cadets of the nation's very first ROTC unit. Captain Constant Cordier, the recipient of that sword, once remarked that in all this land, there is no better material for officers than is found in the student body of Harvard. Tonight, I would add, there is no better material for the student body of Harvard than is found in officers. It is within a rich tradition that you all gather tonight. This, the fourth biennial dinner of its kind, and I the student veterans who worked with the staffs of the Center for Public Leadership, the Belfer Center, and the IOP to plan this event. Since its earliest days, Harvard has served the community and the nation of which it is a part. At the moment, I'm in Massachusetts Hall, which today houses my office, and centuries ago housed a hospital for the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Working in this building reminds me of the service of generations of Harvard men and women. Memorial Church and Memorial Hall, McKinlock Hall, and Soldiers Field. They too are lasting reminders of selfness, selflessness and sacrifice, of the qualities that distinguish you among your peers. You represent to our entire university community what it means to be a soldier and a scholar, binding action and thought as you pursue wisdom. We recognize and are grateful for your dedication to supporting and defending the Constitution. And we are committed to ensuring that your Harvard experience is challenging and meaningful. And I pledge to you that we will continue to foster a campus environment in which military service is upheld as one of the finest examples of public service. Thank you once again for your service and for your commitment to two of the United States' great institutions. I'd now like to turn the podium over to Daniel Fian. He is our uh, moderator in the panel tonight. Uh, Daniel is a uh, former uh, active duty uh, Army, uh, Army captain who served for four years and had uh, two deployments in Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's also served uh, in Teach for America in, his, uh, in Gary, Indiana, uh, as well as um, uh, being the head of HKS's Armed Forces Committee. He's studying uh, veterans' issues here, veterans' homelessness and the post-9-11 GI Bill here at the Kennedy School. So we have no one better to, to moderate and lead this, a this activity. Dan? Thank you, Dean Elwood. And uh, I just want to start out by thanking uh, Professor David Gergen and the Center for Public Leadership uh, for making this event possible in the first place. So my name is Dan Fian, and I'm a Master of Public Policy student here at the Kennedy School. And uh, it's my honor tonight to lead uh, what I hope will be a unique conversation, a conversation on veterans policy. The title of this event is Ask What You Can Do for America's Veterans. And on the behalf of all military veterans here in the Harvard community, it's my hope that tonight is merely a starting point, a starting point for a conversation that each of you, regardless of whether you've served in uniform, can play a part uh, for the rest of our generation. 
More than a million men and women have served in this last decade plus of war and have exited service already. More than a million over the next five years will do that same path and will leave service having fought in our nation's wars. As a nation, we've been here before. And if you look back at the last hundred years, we treated this moment differently. And at times, as a nation, we've risen to the occasion and met the veterans' needs after war. And today, I would argue, we are at that moment for this generation of the global war on terror. While the fighting of our generation's war is nearing an end, there is work still left to be done. We're honored tonight with three panelists uh, that I will hope will serve as your introduction to the challenges that face the military veteran, but also the positive ways in which the spirit of service embodied in military veteran can be reintegrated and incorporated into communities across this country. So please consult your programs for more full bio, but I wanted to hit some highlights of those, uh, those panels we have here tonight. Beginning on my left is General Stanley McChrystal, serving uh, over 34 years in a decorated career as an Army officer. Uh, General McChrystal left us resigning in 2010 after 34 years. His experience in the military culminated as the commander, as many of you know, of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan, a great responsibility. But since retiring, General McChrystal has engaged in public service, and specifically to veterans' public service. He's the head of a White House initiative for military families. He's played an active role in the Aspen Institute's Ideas Forum. And uh, his new book, which I want to highlight, My Share of the Task, is a very intimate look at what it means to lead, and lead in circumstances that are high stakes, low stakes, and everything in between. Now, in Harvard Connection, General McChrystal did spend some time here as a National Security Fellow. Uh, unfortunately, he is presently employed at uh, what I finally refer to as the uh, Harvard of Central Connecticut, which is known as Yale University, but uh, he does have a Harvard route that we, we cannot hold against him. Seated to the left of General McChrystal is Anise Parker. Mayor Parker has been mayor of the city of Houston, the nation's fourth largest city since 2010. And she's been in public service, specifically elected office in the city of Houston for over 15 years at this point. She is a graduate of the Kennedy School's uh, executive ed program in 2005. And what I find neat is that the city of Houston, if you don't have a chance to visit the city of Houston, it's a wonderful place. Forbes magazine recently called it literally the coolest city in America, and the New York Times called it the seventh best place to visit in the entire world, which I suppose we can attribute to you. <laughs> and lastly is Mr. Spencer Kimpton. Uh, Spencer is a president of a nonprofit called The Mission Continues. And if you haven't heard of this organization, this is, I hope, one takeaway you have of the night. He is a graduate, school, or a graduate of the Harvard Business School, and is a former Army helicopter pilot, as well as a former recruiter for Teach for America. Now, what all three of these have in common is that they are avid thinkers and practitioners of veterans' policy. And I hope they will serve as an introduction for you for a conversation that will last long beyond tonight. And to open up to questions, I'd like to go first to you, General McChrystal. In your book, uh, My Share of the Task, there's a, a theme of the continuity of soldiers that have made a choice to serve in a time of war. And I want to read an excerpt uh, for you to, to reflect upon here. And I quote, 
Like the generations they followed and those they now led, they, the veteran, came forward when called and sacrificed when needed. They did so quietly, often in shadows, with no expectation of reward. They were no better than their grandfathers and not a bit worse. Knowing this, having this wisdom, what can now be done as a nation winds down for war in anticipation of future armed conflicts, especially in an era of increasing fiscal restraint? Sure. Well, thanks. Um, I love to study history, and I feel a little bit like I'm in the Roman Colosseum, and you're about to let the lions out. Um, I think that what I was trying to say there was there was a continuity in soldiers. The particular part of that story, it was uh, uh, Christmas Eve 2009, and I was visiting remote bases in Afghanistan, as commanders would do. And we got to one small base, and it was really a Bozieste-looking fort in the middle of nowhere. About 70 soldiers, half Afghan, half American. And, and in this place, we stopped at 6 that night. And two helicopters, we get out, and we, we meet them, and we talk to them for a while. We took pictures with them. We pinned some medals on some guys. And it's a time to about go to the next one. Typically, they've gotten up their courage, and they want to take pictures with you. And so they say, sir, can we take pictures? And so you kind of do group pictures. And, and one of the young soldiers standing next to me, I look at their name tag because um, you like to be able to address people by their name. And I looked, and it was a very unusual last name. And I looked at him in a second, and I just said, was your father in the service? And he said, yes, sir, he was. And then I said, was your father a ranger? And he said, yes, sir, he was. And he knew where I was going because his father had a ranger with me when we were younger and then had gone on to a commando force that I commanded. And in the summer of 2005, in a very difficult time in Iraq under my command, his father had been killed in combat. And now, in a remote part of Afghanistan, I run into a private who has picked up the torch from his father, didn't want recognition, and I was just struck by the continuity of it. And everywhere I went, you would see this continuity, not just of military service, not just of you know, fathers and sons being in a military caste. It's not that at all. I think America has a tradition of serving when you need to serve. And if you go back to all of our families, whether we have somebody served now. You go back to the times when America needed it, and invariably, people will go back and find fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, and people. And people take great pride in that. And I think that that tradition of service is so important. And I think George Washington said it best when he said how, and I'm paraphrasing, how we treat our veterans from this war will determine our ability to protect our freedom in future wars. And so. It's that continuity that I think is sacred. Well, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Mayor Parker, I, from the perspective of, of a city, many people, when I, when I speak, to, uh, speak to them about veterans policy, they're very surprised to find that military veterans are at a higher risk of homelessness, at a higher risk of suicide, and that they largely suffer from mental health problems due to combat more than their non-veteran comparison group. How can a city, or any community really, for that matter, help veterans to find each other in support and to work to tackle the challenges together? Well, first I'll start by why Houston. We have something on the order of 300,000 veterans in the greater Houston area. We have one of the largest veterans concentrations in the United States. 
And we've made a strategic decision that we need to do a better job with the veterans as they come home. Uh, if you look at the streets of Houston, at one point we had some 10,000 homeless, uh, a third of whom were veterans, uh, many of them Vietnam vets. 20 years from now, we don't want to look back and say we have that same of our homeless population that is uh, Iraq or Afghanistan vets. We have responsibilities. I'm a major employer. I have 20,000 employees in the city of Houston. So I have the responsibility to lead by example as we hire returning veterans, many of whom, because we instituted a veterans hiring preference, are going into our uh, police and fire departments and, kind of, and jumping to the head of the line. But also how we deal as an employer with our deployed uh, reservists and National Guardsmen. We have responsibilities in public safety. Uh, we have instituted in Houston a, we have a homeless court, but we also created a veterans court. Someone who is a recent veteran who uh, substance abuse problems, DWIs, anger management issues, if, if they will self-identify or we can identify them, route them through the homeless court and they can get plugged in directly to the appropriate uh, levels of, of social services. We just created a sobering center for the city of Houston. I no longer take people to jail who get picked up for public intoxication, for example. I take them to a, a sobering center. Uh, we also have, uh, that's the public safety side, but we also have the, the social service side and to try to make the connections. What we attempt to do is grab them as they come off the plane. Make sure that they know there is a community there. I have, uh, some, as I said, some props with me. We have uh, asset lists, uh, both what's available in the larger Houston area and what is available strictly in the city of Houston. But it really is not enough to hand somebody a really nifty brochure listing all the uh, available social services because nine times out of 10, those veterans are gonna think they don't need those social services, they're fine. So what you have to do is create the mechanism to keep coming back and, and making the connection. We also think it's very important to, to build a new history. We take very seriously Veterans Day, Memorial Day, we, we reach out and make sure that we touch as many veterans as we can around those events so that they, uh, they, they feel welcome and, and included. And then uh, in addition, because we have in Houston the largest, arguably the largest medical complex in the United States and our particular expertise now is traumatic brain injury, it's a shame that TBI is now a noun. And we talk about how many TBIs we have in our area. And we've had to educate our own population as to, uh, actually there's almost a, uh, a fear that many of our veterans are dangerous. Our veterans aren't necessarily dangerous to us, they're dangerous to themselves. And uh, we have had to really work with the community to uh, work with employers to, to smooth the path. And so I would say that for any city out there wanting to try to emulate what Houston has done with veterans, it's that, it's that first touch, it's a continued touch, 
It's making sure that you know uh, what services are available, you add to the services that are available, and that you work with the families to reintegrate those veterans into the community, and you don't let them go. Got to keep a hold on to them. Thank you very much. And that, that touches nicely on, on you, Mr. Kempton. Uh, so I didn't, in detail, the mission continues is the name of the nonprofit uh, that Mr. Kempton is the president of. And what's unique about it is that it, it's the, the flip side of, of the negative side of, of veterans' issues. It's, a, it's an empowerment feature that allows veterans to continue public service through community service. And so, Mr. Kimmett, to you, the, the motto of your organization is, it's not a charity, it's a challenge. And can you speak to what your organization is doing, and, and more broadly, what that motto means uh, for the community at large to understand about a veteran? Uh, I first want to start by saying it's a true honor to be on the stage um, with General McChrystal and Mayor Parker, both public servants. I thank you for your service and for the leadership role that you're taking um, in veterans. Uh, and Dan, I'm going to use you in my answer, actually, because I think you're particularly emblematic of what we're trying to do and what that tagline embodies. It's a charity, it's not a challenge. I want to thank you for your, your story of service, which spans across both military service and civilian service. You, you came back and um, when, you, when you terminated your military service, you said, I want to serve again. How can I do so? I'm going to tackle a pressing problem in my community. I'm going to tackle the education problem that is rife in low-income communities, and I'm going to join Teach for America. And I think that's particularly emblematic of um, how we should view this returning generation of veterans as civic assets. Um, so the tagline, it's not a charity, it's a challenge. There are over 40,000 uh, volunteer or veteran service organizations, nonprofits, um, that have popped up um, in the last decade to serve this generation of veterans. Um, and we believe uh, that a distinctive feature of the mission continues in, in organizations like those is that we did not pop up to give handouts to just this generation of veterans. This generation has unique skills and experiences that we can redeploy in our communities to tackle pressing issues across the entire spectrum of community issues. Um, and what's wonderful about that is that this generation of veteran also needs that service. This is an all-volunteer force. Every single one of them willingly and soberly chose to serve in the military over the last decade. And that, that choice uh, indicates that on average, uh, this generation has a proclivity to serve. Um, so we want to tap into that. Uh, they need that. Veterans need to serve again. Uh, they need that reconnection to a purpose. They need that reconnection to a team. They need that reconnection um, to the overall mission, um, similar to the to one that they had in the military over the, the last decade. Um, so we tell every veteran who, who comes into our program at the Mission Continue that you sh we hope you're not here for a handout. We are going to challenge you. We're going to put you back in your community, and we're going to ask you to serve again. Thank you so much for that. Gentleman Crystal, back to you. In, 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 in Spencer's answer, there's an aspect of, of leadership here. And so I wanted to, to take one more quote uh, from your book and the idea of, of your, your definition of leadership and how it can be applied more broadly to the nation at large in, in, the, in the term of responsibility. Uh, and, and here's the quote. Uh, in the end, leadership is a choice. 
Rank, authority, and even responsibility can be inherited or assigned whether or not an individual desires or deserves them. Even the mantle of leadership occasionally falls to people who haven't sought it. But actually leading is different. A leader decides to accept responsibility for others in a way that assumes stewardship of their hopes, their dreams, and their very lives. How does the United States, at this point, accept responsibility for others in, a, in exchange for what the military veteran has done in war over the last decade plus? I think if we think of it, the United States as a community or even a, an extended family, what we have essentially done is asked veterans to go forth and serve. The, the women and men that go forth don't do it because they dreamed up foreign policy or that they started a war. They went because the nation asked them to. Even in volunteer military, we ask people to serve. And it's a huge request we make. And they serve. And they believe that they are doing what the nation and what other Americans want them to do. Uh, they have chosen to believe that they are representing the desires and, of course, the needs and the interests of everyone in this room and everyone in the nation. I think we send young people away, we're responsible for them. We pay them. We, we give them their mission. We're responsible why they're there, and we're responsible when they come home, not, as Spencer and the mayor said so well, not to give them something, but to do a couple of things. And the first is to give them an opportunity to continue to serve, give them a place to fit in. If you think about it, if you go away for four years or eight years, you were gone. Other people have established relationships. They may have established a job. They may have gone to school. They may have done a number of things which allows them to be settled in their community. Suddenly, you're gone for a period. And even if you come back having served wonderfully, you've got to reconnect back into that. And you're doing it at a slightly different age. And so the community needs to help them connect, not to do it for them, to give them the touch and then give them the constant push to do that. The other thing we don't do well enough now is we don't reassure them that what they did was what we wanted them to do. I think Vietnam was the low point of it. I think we did a terrible job. But if you look around, and we do better now, but if you look around at what we did after earlier wars, like the Civil War, every community you can find in America, there's a statue. And it's typically not to a general or something. It's to a soldier, a soldier who served. The little town I live in, in Alexandria, Virginia, there, a Confederate soldier. And what it does is it simply says, it, it doesn't underwrite the Confederacy as a cause. It simply says, you served when asked. And I think it's very important we fill that need in veterans. We simply reassure them that what you did was our bidding and what you did was necessary and right. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to open it up in, in general uh, for Mayor Parker and Mr. Kimpton uh, to, a, to a, a question that touches on this and what the nation appears to be struggling with. There's a, a perception of a, a civil-military divide, is what it's called, that the all-volunteer force that we have being less than 1% of the nation's population is difficult to reintegrate and reconcile, being such a small representation. How can, at the city level, how can, in the, in the service sector, how can 
we start the conversation of civil and military in a way that there's no perception of a divide, but rather a seamless community that John McChrystal alluded to? I don't know that, I don't know that we're going to get there. I, and I have to be careful how I say this. In, in many of our previous wars, there was a much higher level of shared sacrifice. Even in Vietnam, with the draft, if, whether, you, whether you fled to Canada or you went and served, there was a dislocation. And there was pain. And there were, and families all across America experienced that, that war. Uh, World War II, that same, really a national sacrifice. Here, it's something that we see on our, on our TV, and we, it's such a small percent of our citizenry has really been touched by war that, that there is a, a distance. And I don't know how you bridge the gap. I don't have an answer. It, it is, we have focused in Houston on creating a culture in the community of respect for the veterans, the feeling that we have a responsibility to welcome them back, that we have a responsibility to reintegrate them. I don't know how you would, but that is because we, we live with, with veterans. And we are learning as a community what is, how best to deal with them. But I don't know what you do across America to uh, bring that home to the rest of the population. I think we, um, we, have a, we have got to get a lot of leverage out of this much smaller group. Um, I think uh, our, our, our nation's future military uh, relies uh, upon what this generation of veterans does. Um, I joined the military because my father had been in the military, my grandfather had been in the military, my grandmother had been a Marine in World War II. I knew it. Right? And fewer and fewer, my son's four years old, he's going to be in a, in a minority that had a, uh, a parent or a brother or a sister who served. Um, so this group of, I mean, Dan cited uh, at the start, uh, a, a million or a million and a half that have, have um, already gotten out of the military, a million more coming in the next few years. We've got to get a lot of leverage out of that group. And how we're leveraging them is putting them in classrooms and asking them to mentor kids and, making, and asking them to be coaches and asking them to work at Habitat for Humanity and going on home builds. Um, that way, that bridges the gap, if only for um, temporary amounts of time or, or service projects, but at least you know, that classroom of kids gets to, to understand what a veteran did over the last uh, 10 years for a brief snippet of time. So, um, that's, that's what we're doing with the veteran. I think that there is a, there is a necessary component um, that uh, the 99% uh, who haven't served need to adopt, and that is quite, quite simply to get to know veterans, um, whether it is, is uh, how you hire and how you engage veterans in your organization, whether it's um, coming out to a service project or engaging with veterans, serving alongside veterans. I think that's a fantastic vehicle for understanding this generation of veterans is to kind of pick up a shovel next to them and serve alongside them. Uh, I think that is how, that is a way that we bridge the gap. Thank you for that. And before I, I put one more question to the, the panel entire, uh, a reminder, you will have an opportunity to engage the panelists uh, with your own questions, uh, hopefully on the topic of veterans policy, but in the tradition of the forum, whatever you would like to know. 
So just a note on that that's coming up. Uh, one more question to all of you. Uh, so there's, there's energy, and I, I, uh, those that have served in this room can, can feel it. There's, there's this mentality in the Amer larger American public of, thank you for your service. And it's kind of a, a it's not, it's, it's a conversation starter, but we don't really know where to go from there. It's, it's awkward to hear that, frankly, in all honesty. It's awkward to hear it, and you don't, you don't know where to push it from there. So the question I would put to, to all of you, how do we capitalize on that energy? How do we capitalize on the ask what you can do spirit that this forum represents and that this school represents? What is one thing everyone here should know about a military veteran? And what is one thing that everyone here can do walking away tonight? We start at the far end, right? <laughs> <laughs> Once a general, always a general. <laughs> one thing. Uh, so I'll have one thing with probably five parts. Um, Please. No, I, I think that uh, it's important um, that everyone realizes uh, that this was a generation uh, that was inclined to serve. Um, and that despite... Um, very real challenges, very real challenges with employment um, and with continuing education and with suicide rates and um, with reconnecting to family members and reconnecting to the community. Those are all very real challenges. But underneath those challenges that this generation of veterans is dealing with, there is an inclination to serve. And we as a we as a, a, a society can tap into that and use that as the hook uh, to get them into an ecosystem that can serve them via benefits or uh, connections to, to employment opportunities. But service is a way um, to, get the, to get veterans into that ecosystem. I think it's important to recognize how very young so many of these veterans are, how young they were going in and, and still how young they are in terms of uh, where their peers are when they come back. Their experience is so completely foreign to the majority of their peers that who is their peer group any longer? It's their fellow veterans. So we, as I stated earlier, we work hard to try to reconnect the veterans who come back in to the larger community. And so if to, to say one thing, when someone thanks you for your service, it's like saying, hello, have a nice day. We don't recognize the sacrifice that goes with the service. And if, what each of us could do to try to get a better grasp of the, the real sacrifice, the personal sacrifice for uh, a veteran who uh, delays that private sector career, who leaves family, uh, the financial burden for a, a reservist that gets deployed over and over again. And, and the, city, sorry, the city of Houston, uh, we keep their salaries static, make sure that they, that they don't lose. But many veterans have a direct financial sacrifice. And I would encourage Americans to reprogram their thinking about, yes, it is service, but there's a, a sacrifice, and then to work to help us reintegrate those veterans directly into our communities and into the workforce. 
I, I think one of the things we can do, I just said it was a subterfuge for me to get time to think about it. Um, the, uh, the first thing we can do is demystify it. One of the things we think about is sometimes people say, thank you for your service, and other times people look at me and say, oh, I could never do what you did. And of course you could. And in whole generations, whole generations did it, and they just chose to, and it, there's nothing magic about it. And so it's not this mystical group of Vulcan warriors that are out there doing something. There are a couple, but um, <laughs> mostly not. But when they come home, they're also not this group of traumatized nutcases. It's not a bunch of people who all have things wrong with them now where they, they can't fit back into society, and you've got to... And that's what I love about the practical things the mayor and Spencer are doing. You know, they're, they're you. They're just you. They just happen to serve. And they come back, and they're you with a slightly new experience and something different they've done. And they may have some scars internally, may have some externally, but they're still you. And they're really, really talented, and they really want to be you again. They don't want to be the unicorn that walks around and where you go, wow, he served. You don't want that. You want to fit back in. And so the ability to be touched by the community and do all the normal things, that's what soldiers and sailors and airmen miss when they're gone. It's not the fancy stuff. It's all the normal stuff. That's what they want to come back to, and that's ultimately what I think they're fighting for. So our ability to demystify that, and when they come in, just let them be. Let them be normal. Let them be one of everybody else, I think, is, uh, is critical. Thank you, General. Thanks, Dan. So at this point, uh, there are a number of microphones placed throughout the forum. This is your chance uh, to ask questions. And so on that note, I've been directed. Uh, so the theory of a question is to uh, elicit a response. So as long as your question can do that and do so in a succinct manner, it would be much appreciated. Uh, feel free to direct your question to any of the panelists or the entire panel uh, as you see fit. And so with that, please. Hi, my name is Neha Dalal. I'm a freshman at the college, and I'm a member of the JFK Junior Forum Committee. And I asked this question on behalf of the committee. So first of all, thank you all for being here and speaking with us today. Um, so you addressed what are the most important things we can do for service members. What are the most important things we can do for their families while they're away? I'll say one as employers. Uh, it is important to make sure that there's not a loss of uh, income and benefits for those family members. Not all employers make that decision. It is important to make sure that, uh, that, that there is a support group of, uh, for those families. Uh, generally, uh, the families of deployed service members integrating with each other, but at least for our own uh, employees of the city of Houston, we make sure that uh, they, it's that connection again. It's all about being a part of the community, that they're, they're regularly integrated and that we, we keep them plugged into the things that are going on and they're checked in on. Perfect. Yes, sir. Yes, good evening. Um, my name is Alex Solis. I'm a freshman at the college, and I'm also a member of the JFK Junior Forum. Um, I'm going to be asking tonight's Twitter question. So, um, President Obama, Michelle Obama, and Joe Biden have made it priorities to reduce veteran unemployment. Coming out of the recession, what public policy programs on the federal level would you implement to bring veterans into the workforce? I can start with that. Uh, 
A couple of things that they've done, I think they've done very well, that is to make tax breaks for companies that hire veterans and to make it easy, to make transferable some of the skills. And I know the president's talked eloquently about this. Someone who serves in a skill like an emergency medical technician in the military, in many cases, although they're wonderfully trained and heavily experienced, that isn't transferable in terms of certification when they go to a local level, when in reality it probably ought to be. It probably ought to be something that we very simply can connect. And you're just reducing the hurdles for companies and for veterans to apply skills they have or to get new skills. I think that's uh, probably the biggest thing. And of course, I'm a great believer that it's not strictly public policy, but some of our nation's big corporations can be encouraged, and they are being, not to do a strict quota system, but sort of do a quota system to track how many veterans they're hiring so that they know. I've talked to many, and they, they just don't know because they don't have a block on the on the uh, employee record that says, and I do think it's valuable, at least while we're working through this uh, over the next decade or so, to know that and, and to get a sense of how you're doing. Thanks, Lon. Thank you. Sir. Hello, my name is Ben Bolger. I'm a Harvard alum. It seems that um, the GI Bill was one of the more forward-looking pieces of public policy that really has consistently helped veterans. Yet today, it seems like there's too few uh, people in the military that are either participating in higher education while they're serving or are taking advantage of the GI Bill that they've, they've actually paid into. I'm wondering what the general thinks we could do to increase higher education opportunities for people serving or when they leave the military. Yeah. I, I'll stake the inside, and I may ask you, Dan, to help me on the, because he's an expert on the GI Bill for veterans. While they're serving, we've always had a problem with it because, on the one hand, we want people to pursue school, and we tell you we want you to do that, and then we work you hard and we deploy you, and it's just not time to do it. And so we end up, we end up with this tension inside the force. Most of our senior non-commissioned officers have degrees now because we've pushed in that direction, but we've made it hard on them because a lot of them have to do it in their spare time, night, and things like that. And I think that's asking an awful lot to do all of that in the midst of a busy career. So tuition assistance is available, and it's been pretty generous through my career, but when the budget gets cut, that can be tight, and that can be one thing. The challenge with the GI Bill is a little bit more complex. I'll do my, my short part of it and then rely on Dan. It was a wonderful thing at the end of World War II, Korea and whatnot, to allow entire generations to have that ability to jump back in. One of the challenges now is that when someone comes out, we probably don't make it goal-oriented enough because we pay someone to go to school, but we don't track the outcome of the education quite as tightly as we might do that. And so I think that that's something that, and we, you know, frankly, we have some cases where schools uh, profit from the fact that people come to school whether or not they're getting the full benefit out of it. Ben? Sure. So it, it's, it's, it's interesting to look. When you ask someone why they enlist in the military, uh, the top answer is, is what you might think, a, a very altruistic thing. I want to serve my country. But what's really interesting is that right below that, I would like to earn money for college. Like it's literally right below. They're, they're nearly as high of motivations. But what happens during a military career is that you engage the altruistic aspect of it, but you don't, you don't touch the other piece. Uh, and your military career is focused on your military career. And while there's been great efforts to engage one's education well in the military, at no point during your service are you truly informed 
what the impacts are of an associate's degree, of a bachelor's degree, of graduate school. These concepts that, for whatever reason, you didn't engage perhaps previously. And so the, the biggest thing in terms of your question of encouraging participation is information. Because there's a lot of information out there right, here, uh, right now, but it's, it's consumer appeal that is attracting veterans to, to make choices that are perhaps, we're not sure on this, but perhaps not the best choices they can make. But they, just like anyone who's attending this institution here, at some point received academic counseling. Dedicated academic counseling to end up here. You didn't end up here by chance. And that's exactly what a military service member needs during their service. Yeah, I, I add one note there. I, I think there is an internal marketing, um, the, an improvement in internal marketing that's necessary when you look at, um, I mean, the, the estimates are that somewhere between a third and a half of veterans may not be using their GI Bill benefits um, towards uh, you know, the education that they could. And those that are, um, again, estimate that as many as 85% may not actually be finishing the degree um, once they're in the system. Um, so there's an internal marketing piece, and I think there's also potentially um, a, an opportunity for us to expand uh, what the GI Bill actually covers so that it is relevant and meets the veteran where he or she is. Not every veteran is going to be ready for school, right, when he or she comes back. Um, there's an opportunity perhaps to consider a term of service um, similar to what we're doing at the, the Michigan Continues as part of the GI Bill umbrella, um, which will then improve readiness and perhaps um, improve those, those completion rates once in school, uh, as well as the utilization rate of the, the GI Bill itself. Thanks for your question. Sir, please. Hi, my name is Jacob Morello, and I'm a sophomore here at the college, and I'm a member of the JFK Junior Forum Committee. And I'd like to ask this question on behalf of the Twitter community. Um, we have another question from Jose, um, and it's only a little bit tangential, but um, he would like the panelists to consider thoughts, or to give their thoughts on national security as it relates to food, and um, to consider the possibility of a food terrorist attack. So I know that's a kind of a wild ball, but if you'd like to take it. I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Perhaps you saw some intelligence to that at respect at some point. But. No, um, what I would tell you is the goal of a terrorist group is typically multiple. One, they want to inconvenience you, they want to scare you, and they want to push a nation or a people into, into a direction for a policy change. That's the traditional things that a terrorist group wants to do. If they can make air flying, air travel frightening to us and much more expensive and much more inconvenient, that's a pretty significant thing. If they can make us fear our food supply, or if they can make us fear the validity of our banking information, or if they can make us fear those things we take for granted, the availability of electricity by, by attacking those systems, they have found very, very effective targets because it's going to get an immediate reaction. You can't ignore it like you might even a car bomb on the other side of town if you suddenly, when you're going to eat tonight, you're not sure. Remember the Excedrin case many years ago where somebody poisoned some Excedrin and it almost killed the brand because everybody thought that if they opened that particular product, it was scared. Think of it that was the food. So I think if a terrorist group wants to go after those things that produce stark, deep fear in America, that's the kind of thing it would have to do. Now, because our food comes from so many places and so many things, it would be hard to do that on a big way, 
but in a narrow way, I think it is. So I, I think it's something that, that bears, you know, consciousness, I should say. I, I will add on, that that's an excellent answer, but as a, a, a mayor, this is the kind of thing we have to think about. And it's more likely uh, to be a fear of a contaminated water supply. As the general said, we get our food from so many different places that it would be really hard to, to impact that. Uh, but uh, an attack on a major city's water supply is something that uh, we take precautions against. Thank you. Sir, please. Hello, I'm Samuel Coffin. I'm a junior at the college. Um, my father and my brother have both served in the Army, and I'm proud that ROTC is back on Harvard's campus. But I still know among some of my peers I've encountered a lot of lack of information about the military and, and military service. And so my question was, what do you see as some of the unique challenges of bridging the civil-military divide at institutions like Harvard? And what do you think of some of the best ways to, to build those bridges? Spencer, what do you think? Okay. Um, <laughs> two for two. Are you going to go to the mayor next? <laughs> um, uh, well, as I said, I think that uh, fewer and fewer Kids of the, the upcoming generation are going to have friends, family members. You're probably unique in this regard. Um, so it's going to take, it's gonna take um, us using other, other pathways um, into uh, the, the kind of hearts and minds of, of generations. And I think showcasing positive stories of, of veteran service, positive transitions home um, for uh, upcoming generations is going to be um, incredibly important. Uh, the general paraphrased Washington's quote earlier, um, and I believe uh, th that's incredibly profound. You know, that 250 years ago he was calling that, um, you know, our future wars were going to be fought and won um, because of the draw to milita military service that uh, this generation of veterans is going to create. Um, so I think the more that we can get positive stories of transitions home, not covering up the challenges that veterans are dealing with coming home, but positive stories of transition, um, I think that future generations are viable, uh, military service is a viable choice. Um, of course, we don't want everyone going into the military, nor should everyone, but they should at least know that it is a viable alternative uh, and a viable way for them to serve their country. I would say that, of course, in, in Texas, we, we send more people into the military than, than any other state, and there's a little bit different attitude there. But we work hard. As I said earlier, we consciously try to engage the entire community on, uh, on, on Veterans Day, on Memorial Day. We just are, this is uh, the three weeks of our rodeo in the city of Houston, and we have a Veterans Appreciation event at the rodeo. Last week, we signed in, we, we, there, we swore in 400 young men and women who joined the service that night surrounded by uh, their family members, but also by the larger veterans community of Houston that we had invited in. And, and having that generation to generation handoff is very important. And those, those young people who, you know, their, their peers, mostly high school students, or right out of high school, their, their peers, are uh, getting a message, uh, not just from their, the new enlistee, but they're getting a message that the entire community and the, the entire, you know, there's a broader family that supports them. 
lots of cultural touchdowns. I just, I just add on the, so you heard Dean Elwood mention the, the number of veterans here in the Harvard community. The vast majority of them are in the graduate schools. And so what, to, to your question, what's, what's missing is that, that, uh, that enlisted member that doesn't have their degree yet who has the ambition to go to Harvard. And that's something that we can work on to improve because it, it was that way following World War II. There were a number of veterans that returned and went to Harvard, a number of presidents that did that exact path. So that's the, in, in my mind, that's where it has the greatest impact, to, for you to know a veteran on the yard. Thank you. Helena, please. Hi, and thank you all for being here tonight. My name is Helena Pilvinen, and I'm a master's student at the Kennedy School. Um, General McChrystal, I especially appreciated your comment um, about a lot of veterans feeling um, as if they're sort of being treated, um, stigmatized potentially as traumatized mental health patients and instead of just regular people. And I've been doing research about women veterans, and something that people are more and more aware of is the issue of military sexual trauma. Something that I've been wondering about, and I'm wondering if any of the panelists have thoughts about, is how do we respond to issues that we know about um, in mental health or military sexual trauma, PTSD, without making veterans feel stigmatized and making their situations less comfortable and making their transitions less, uh, more difficult? I can start. Um, I think the first thing to do is recognize it. We've all dealt with somebody that's got something about them that's different. They are either physically handicapped or whatever. They know it. You're not kidding yourself. Uh, and you don't talk around it. You don't pretend that that's not the case. On the other hand, that's not all you talk about. That, that doesn't become the core of it. This isn't my friend Joe. He's handicapped. It, it is a fact that all of us have things about us that are that are not uh, what we want them to be, even though at one point they may have been that way. So I think what we've got to do is we've got to put programs in place. We've got to work to destigmatize people. We've got to be fairly open about it without violating someone's personal privacy. So I think you can talk about mm -hmm. situations without talking about individuals and, and uh, putting them in that uncomfortable position. But but every person's got to work through it themselves. Even the most Pollyanna view I can give you of this, when someone's got something that bothers them, they're going to have to work through it. We can't make it go away. We can help with it, and we can try to give an environment that is, that is less difficult. But we just got to recognize that that's something that, that they may need a little help with. Some of the social services need to be specifically targeted to women. It's a different type of outreach. And we recently uh, opened a uh, veterans housing just for women veterans. We have a lot of supportive housing for male veterans that is open to, to women, but we finally decided that we needed some, I use this word cautiously, segregated housing, specifically targeted to, to women veterans. I believe what we have to combat is isolation. Um, you know, we. Uh, we often um, talk about, at the mission continues, around the, the, the four black walls. We don't want the veteran um, to be in the, the four black walls of their room, self-medicating, dealing potentially with post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury or moral injury, um, dealing with uh, real injuries, uh, physical injuries. Um, you know, we want them out of those four walls. Um, and you've got to establish a common ground uh, to meet them, 
Um, in our case, the, the common ground that we've chosen is service. Get them out into an endeavor, a, uh, give them a sense of purpose again, which puts them into an ecosystem that you can start dealing with some of the other struggles that they're dealing with. Um, some of these other injuries or you know, real problems, but you've got to find a common ground. And I think appealing to the sense of mission, the unit, uh, the esprit de corps, the camaraderie that they, all, um, that they all found in the military in some way is a way to get them into that ecosystem and then deal with the, those issues. Thank you. Thank you, Helena. We have time for two more questions tonight, so we'll finish here and here. Sir, please. Hello, thank you very much. My name is Sitsa Gofard. I'm a sophomore at the college, and yeah, it's been an honor to hear you all speak. Um, I think it was late January or early February, you might remember, um, a pretty high-profile controversy came out over um, the former Navy SEAL who allegedly was um, involved in the Osama bin Laden raid, um, and who claimed that he was being denied uh, government sort of health care benefits. Um, and obviously that made a lot of people upset, understandably. On the other hand, there were folks who said um, you had to have served a minimum number of years to be eligible for those benefits. Um, and I was wondering what your take is on this. Where do you st what were your reactions when that controversy broke out? I assume you want me to take that one? Sure, no, um, probably. Yeah, I, and I'll tell you where I came down on it. First, you gotta honor that uh, service member, that SEAL who did so much, uh, and so I do. I, I am a little concerned about the news story because I don't know all the facts behind it, but I did talk to a number of people still serving in the SEAL community, and they were disturbed by the twist of the story or the, the tone of the story that indicated that here's a guy who'd done so much and then the community hadn't done the right things by him. My understanding is that, one, he knew that he had, I think, four more years to serve, like everyone does to reach retirement, so there's no surprise. He was offered opportunities to move out of the operational force and that they were gonna give him fairly unique opportunities to serve without having to go back into combat and whatnot. And my, my uh, experience with that force is that they're pretty careful about taking care of people. So I, I'm not an expert on all the details there, but I fear that that story oversimplified and painted a picture that isn't accurate and isn't fair uh, to the community that it uh, represented. Thank you. Final question, sir. Pressure of the final question. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Jim Matheson. I'm a retired Naval officer and an HBS graduate. Spencer, good to see you. I note that Dan and Spencer, with, with interest and respect, that you were both Teach for America participants. So I'm wondering if we can't turn the question on its head and say, why so few get to serve in the military how do we expand opportunities for 18-year-old high school graduates and 22-year-old Harvard graduates to serve their country, maybe not in uniform, but teaching or working in the inner city and building things either here or overseas? How do we expand the construct of service? Well, actually, um, I might throw this one back at the general. Um, and there, and there, there's, there's a reason for that. Um, yeah, yeah, please. And Spencer, I appreciate it. One, both of these guys exemplify that already, and the mayor, what she's doing, does as well. But I've had the opportunity to join a project with the Aspen Institute called the Franklin Project. And it is based on the idea, and I'm joined by some amazing colleagues who are, are supporting it as well, that national service is right for America now. And when I say national service, I don't mean strictly military service. That would be one kind of service there would be a span of service that would range from healthcare to education 
to you name it, that young people would do, and it would do several things. First off, I think when people invest in something, they contribute to something, they value it more highly. I always use the example, if you are required to pick up trash on Massachusetts Avenue, you will be more upset when people litter. You own it a little differently. The second thing is, I think that the opportunity to serve changes something in each of us. I think citizenship is not paying your taxes and voting. I think it's far more than that. I think it's giving in ways. And I think that a lot of people would like to find a way to give that fits, but they need, their, they need to feel like they're not going to fall way behind their peer group in doing that. Uh, third, I think we truncate society now. Most of us, particularly young people, associate with our socioeconomic class or our ethnic class or our religious group or our neighborhood group. And in reality, we don't really mix across America nearly like we should. And some of the experiences that we had in the Second World War where people were jammed together changed a generation because they came back from that with a better sense of it. So my personal view and, uh, is that there ought to be a period of service, a bridge year, probably after high school, where everybody serves. It's non-negotiable. Everybody serves, we mix America, we, we invest in America, and then we go on with the lives. And I think the payoff would be in the citizens we create. Thank you. Thank you. Here, here. I want to uh, personally thank this panel for, for a very rich conversation on a, a policy topic that I, I wish uh, will continue from this point forward. And to that end, I would like to issue a challenge to everyone here tonight. I, you are very likely, if you are not a military veteran, you are in all likelihood sitting next to a military veteran. So what I would challenge you to do tonight is to start a conversation with them, to go beyond the mentality of thank you for your service and ask them about their service to change the framework that we have and have embraced, support our troops, and please know our troops. And that's my challenge to you, because it's a conversation. If you start it tonight, it will last a generation. And with that, it's my great honor uh, to turn over for closing remarks to Professor David Gergen. Please. Thank you. Th thank you, Dan. Uh, Dean Elwood and Drew Faust uh, drew our attention earlier this evening to the long and storied tradition that Harvard has and in its commitment to military service as a noble and high form of public service. Uh, Drew is fond of telling people that if you look at the Medal of Honor lists, there are more Medal of Honor winners from Harvard University over the course of the nation's uh, history more Medal of Honor winners from this university than from any other university in the country, save the military uh, universities. And I think that's a real tribute to the quality of people who've come here and to the quality uh, and to the values that this re university represents. Graham Allison, I think, could walk us through how much of a divide opened up on this campus during the Vietnam War and the years that followed. Uh, between the military and the civilian service, uh, something that was a long uh, wound. And we're now trying to recover from that wound, to heal that divide, uh, to build something different, a more inclusive community. And this evening is really dedicated to that proposition, that, we, that there are many forms of service. 
uh, and that we, we come here tonight to tell those who are here from the military, not only thank you for your service, but thank you for coming to Harvard. Thank you for being in our classrooms. You've made an enormous difference in the classrooms here at the Kennedy School, in the business school, the law school, graduate programs, and increasingly at the undergraduate level. So we appreciate that. Uh, we're very, very appreciative of those who came tonight. And when you think of the, the story that Spencer Kempton represents, uh, to have served as he did, graduating valedictorian from West Point, uh, and then service eight years, and then coming here to business school, going to McKinsey where he could make a lot of money, doing that for about four years, and hearing that siren song of service and going to work for Teach for America, and now with, with the mission continues. We're, we're really, it's an impressive story. You represent the best. I know. So, and, and, and Mayor Parker, you've, you know, you've got one of the highest. You've made Houston the job capital of the world. Mayor Parker has been named one of the, by Time Magazine, one of the 100 most influential people in the world, in the world. And one of the things she has done so well is to work with the veterans community. And General McChrystal, we can't say enough about you, sir. You came to our last dinner. Uh, you and Annie, and Annie, why don't you stand up? This is, the, this is Annie of it, uh, uh, who's uh, <coughs> his spouse and, and you can imagine in, in his book, I think he writes about four to five Christmases in a row. You all were separated uh, as, as he was going on that helicopter rides to see troops. Uh, and so we thank you for what you've given to because we know how much that means. But General McChrystal, it's, uh, uh, the fact that you've gone on now, you've continued to work on forms of service here with the, with the Franklin Project. One of the co-chairs of the Franklin Project is Alan Casey, who, who's sitting right over here, and they're gonna be, they're working closely together on, uh, on that. Uh, we thank you, sir, for being here, and we're, I, I, I wanna say a word about the students who organized this. This was an evening that was really intended to focus and say thank you to the, to the, to the uh, military veterans who are students, uh, but also to focus on leadership. And you know what the Student Organizing Committee did? They just said, you know, we just don't want to focus on leadership. We want to exercise leadership. And so Dan and others convinced us, don't make this about us. We want to make this an evening about all the veterans who have come back. And they're the ones who put this together. We said, fine, go for it. And they, they, got the, they got the panel together, they built it up, and they worked with our staff, Kathy Coyle, and a whole bunch of other here. But they're the ones who really put it together. And, and to see our veterans demonstrating leadership is one of the reasons why we're so appreciative of them being here uh, at the school. So it's been one of those grand evenings. We thank everyone for coming. We asked the color guard, where is the color guard? If you ask if you would stand again, the color guard is going to come, come up here to retire colors. And after the completion of, uh, after they retire the colors, uh, then those of you who are coming to dinner uh, over at the Charles, the, if you can, you can come down through these stairs here and go over. Others of you, <coughs> I've been asked, uh, uh, <laughs> Kathy, uh, without her voice, there are, there, are, there are doors over here that you think that might be the best way to. But, but again, thank all of you for a wonderful evening. Thank you again for your service and for coming to Harvard.